0: Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Judy Cobb. Judy is a social worker in the field of hospice care. She is also the author of two published children's books, The Elegant Miss Osa Barely and The First Gift. I started the interview by asking Judy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: Well, I was born and raised in a suburb of Los Angeles by the name of Compton, California. Well, I have never figured out if it was upper-lower class or lower-middle <laughs> class, but I had a wonderful childhood. It The area was rural at that time, and it was just a great place to grow up. And I have an older sister who's eight years older than me, So we lived there with my mother and father until I actually, I married at 21 and then moved away.
0: What did you enjoy doing? What were your interests growing up?
1: My mother and father made sure that my sister and I had a spiritual education. A lot of our family time was spent in the Presbyterian Church. We were there on Sundays. We were there on Sunday nights. We were involved in the choir and in the clubs and in the religious instruction there. So a lot of our life revolved around that. I've always been very thankful for that experience because the minister that was there was just a wonderful person. And I, as I look back on it, I believe that he really set me on the path of seeking a more spiritual life and developing myself spiritually. That was a lot of the family time that was spent there. Uh, as I said, it was, it was very rural. There were lots of kids in the area, and we just roamed the neighborhood. <laughs> uh, so unfortunately, kids don't seem to be able to do that now, but then we did. I was born in 1943. So there were war veterans who lived there with lots of young children. It was a great time for me. We would put on plays and circuses and talent shows and everything that you could think of. So I was able, I think, to develop my imagination during that time.
0: What did you do between high school and getting married?
1: I did go to two years of college, and that's where I met my husband, so I was in junior college for two years, and then my then-husband and I got married when I was 21 years old.
0: And what did you study in college?
1: I studied language, Spanish and French, but I always had a very eclectic interest a lot of things interested me. Psychology interested me. Sociology interested me. And I think I always enjoyed the relationships that I saw between the disciplines. At that time, you know, psychology was psychology. Geology was geology. A lot of these subjects had no interdisciplinary relationship. They were distinct in and of themselves. I always saw a lot of relationship between the different subjects and enjoyed seeing that. It's been really great to see in later years here that very much the disciplines in academia are interacting with each other and sharing knowledge, sharing information.
0: What did you do after you got married?
1: Well, I worked for about uh, two years. Then I was expecting my first child, and then a second child came, and I was a homemaker. That was for about eight years. I was then divorced at that time. So the next few years, honestly, were really spent uh, working and raising my two sons.
0: As a single mom.
1: As a single mom.
0: So that must have been quite difficult.
1: It was very difficult. Also, I began to go back to school and build on the two years' education that I had. I finished up my four year degree, and then eventually, now this was a very long process, Mm. and then eventually I finished my master's degree and social work. So it was a long process, but I just kept chipping away with a class or two a semester until I finally managed to make my way through that. And when I finished, my sons were grown. You can see how long it took me.
0: Did you realize you were interested in social work when you were finishing your bachelor's degree?
1: Yes, I think my bachelor's degree was in psychology. And I'll tell you what I loved about social work. It was a discipline at that time that was based on what's known as the systems theory. And the view of that is that things are interrelated, psychology is going to affect a person and family. Sociology is going to affect a person and their family.
0: Religion is
1: going to affect that family. So I think that when I spoke before, having this view in life of being able to see how things were related, wow, the systems theory just really hit me right between my eyes and felt very comfortable. So... I think as most any social work would tell you, that's what social work is all about, is seeing the relationships between the world at large and then finding a way to bring these different systems together in support of people and their families.
0: And when did you discover this systems relationship?
1: Well, I first heard... The word systems theory, when I decided I was going to go to to a school to be a social worker, I had really played with the idea of uh, getting my Ph.D. in psychology. But the more I thought about it, I thought, well, I'll explore social work. And when I did, I felt it had a more expanded view of who people were, and that this was important to see and to understand and to be in that discipline where I could practice that kind of theory.
0: What gave you the inkling to even investigate social work? What was the catalyst to that?
1: I think for me... Getting a Ph.D. at that time just seemed like a long way to go. I don't think I wanted to just work with people in a psychological sense. I wanted to be able to investigate and see all the areas that might affect them. I mean, I believe people are spiritual. They have this of course, this wonderful spiritual component that comes via the soul. And I just didn't feel comfortable leaving out all the other pieces as I saw them.
0: After you got your bachelor's degree, did you start working again? or I guess you were working while you were going to school.
1: Yes, I was. I was working full-time and going to school a part-time. I was working full-time. The whole time, uh, until I finally was awarded my master's degree in 1993, I was older than a lot of the students that I went to school with, but that was a wonderful experience because you really have to be on your toes when you're around younger people. And it also was an encouragement to bring my thinking up to date in a lot of things. Now, during this time, too, I was also doing a lot of investigation of different kinds of faith traditions because I had drifted away from my roots and I wasn't comfortable doing that. I felt I was missing something in my life. So I would go and investigate this faith tradition and another and another Some I found lacked spirituality that I craved, that connection to God. And some were very spiritual in nature, but were really unable to answer some of the questions that I had. And a big one for me was there were people all over the world of different faiths. And I couldn't understand how they could be left out of God's mercy and guidance. I, I wasn't comfortable with that. I wasn't comfortable thinking that I could actually feel more merciful than God would be. And I just felt God was much larger than that.
0: What do you think was causing you to drift away from your spiritual roots in the first place?
1: I think that I could not get some basic questions answered. And I had a lot of questions I couldn't get an answer. I um was very interested in exploring different things and it's interesting what happened. I was working at a medical center. I was on a rant one day with a friend of mine. We were actually in the ladies' lounge, and we were sitting there, and we were talking. And I was upset about something that was currently in the news. This young woman said to me, Well, you know, Judy, I'd like to offer you a different perspective on this. And she did. And on the topic at hand, she offered a Baha'i perspective on what I was talking about, and I thought, well, gee, you know, that that really makes sense to me. She invited me to what's known as a fireside, which is an informational meeting that people who want to further investigate the faith or just have questions or just want to go with a friend the Baha'is have these meetings that one can go to, and they usually have a speaker that's about, oh, 20 minutes. And then you can ask questions in a pressure-free environment. No one is pushing or prodding or doing anything to push you one way or the other. So it's pretty low-key. And I started going to these firesides. All of a sudden, a lot of things began to make sense. The world began to make sense in a spiritual way. But also, interestingly enough, in a material way, in the sense that Baha'u'llah, the prophet and founder of the Baha'i faith, not only wrote these beautiful spiritual verses, but also talked about The principles that will bring peace and unity to the world and what's interesting about these principles is they sound very practical but in actuality they're very very spiritual so when Baha'is talk about that we want to give assurances to women of full equality of opportunity with men this is not just a social principle or a political solution. But it's gaining an understanding and practicing this as a spiritual truth. Now, the spiritual component to this, although we might agree, oh, this is a nice thing to do, to give women equality, let's do that, it sounds good. But the truth is, is there is going to be no world peace unless and until women have the full equality that gives them the, the opportunity to interact on an equal level with men. So it's kind of a two-fold thing, these principles, and then what is at stake spiritually if, in fact, we don't come in line with these principles,
0: I'm curious, back when you were in that break lounge in the hospital and you were ranting about something in the news and your friend was providing you with a different perspective, what was that different perspective? Do you remember?
1: Actually thinking that it was on women's equality. There was no equivocation. Women are equal to men. If it seems like they're not, it's only because of lack of education and opportunity. Of course, it's nice to have your inner thoughts validated. <laughs> you know, it's not fair that women aren't equal, and what can we do about it? But it also seemed to me that the political things that were happening to try to make this happen were generating a lot of anger and resentment among people, women having to quote-unquote fight for this, and certain norms of society resisting that. But yet, here was Baha'u'llah, who died in 1892, stating that this was necessary. In this day and age, it was necessary. And so then that made sense to me, and I, I think of all things, religion has to make sense, at least to me. And so that's when I decided to go uh, and investigate further. And then, of course, I learned more about these principles, the abandonment of all forms of prejudice, universal education, the independent Investigation of the truth, of the search for truth. Now, this was very, very important to me. I think really reinforced that we've been given by God these rational minds that allow us to look at things, to study things, and then to make our decisions based upon those things, rather than maybe fear or pressure or guilt but that we can use this rational mind to uh, advance ourselves spiritually. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, we have this wonderful mind, and we can use this to delve into the mysteries of ourselves and the mystery of God.
0: Yeah, and delving into ourselves sort of falls in line with what you are pursuing educationally, with psychology and then social work.
1: Yes, yes, and... <laughs> I'm actually very grateful to psychology because I think it gave me a lot of personal insight. And I think for me that was the best part of it. And the personal insight and learning to maybe understand myself a little bit better, what my own personal barriers were, actually allowed me to feel more closely connected with God, and that in turn continued to allow me to pursue the uh, questions that I have. Now, about that time, too, I came across this wonderful book. The name of it is Some Answered Questions, and uh, this book was published in 1908. Uh, A lady by the name of Laura Clifford Barney, she visited Haifa between like 1904 and 1906.
0: Haifa Israel.
1: Yes, Haifa Israel. And she actually had the opportunity, the blessing, to meet with Abdu'l-Baha. Now, this was the son of Baha'u'llah. And she had, coming from a Christian background, she had many, many, many questions. So they would set together, perhaps have a meal, and she would ask him questions. And part two of this book is actually all about Christian subjects, and it addresses the birth of Christ, the Trinity, all of these Christian subjects. And I'm not ashamed to admit that when I read that book, I wept. Because it touched me so deeply. Because the answers were so spiritual, but they were logical. They made sense. They made sense in a way that took none of the mystery out of these beautiful topics. It didn't dilute it. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. It it didn't dilute the spirituality, the beauty of these topics. So this was a very, very important book to me. I also want to uh, share with you that I became a Baha'i rather quickly. I think in about, oh, probably a month or two I became a Baha'i. Then I started thinking about what I did, and... (laughs) I think if you've thought about religion for a long time, it might be pretty easy, at least it was for me, to say, oh, my goodness, what have I done? I've changed my religion. What are you doing here? (laughs) So I met with my friend. I said, Cynthia, I've got to talk with you. We walked around the parking lot at this university while I said, oh, Cynthia, I don't know what I've done. I, you know, I did this so fast. I did it really from my heart. And what she said was very profound to me. She said, You know, Judy, this is all about the independent investigation of the truth. Nothing's going to happen to you if you need more time to look at this, to study this. You're not going to be punished by God or anybody else. So take the time that you need to do what you need. Saying that actually gave me the ability to relax, read more, and to develop the assurance that I needed that I was on the right track. I was especially also interested in knowing what, Baha'u'llah had to say about Christ. And in the World Order of Baha'u'llah, which is another book, Baha'u'llah said the most wonderful things about Jesus Christ that I had ever read in my life. He states quite forthrightly that there is no conflict between the faith of Baha'u'llah and the faith of Jesus Christ. And that Christ has full authority in what he did. So the testimony that he gave Christ as the author of the Christian religion, I feel is a real testimony to the validity of the faith of Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i faith.
0: Can you give me an example of Abdu'l-Bahá explaining a Christian concept that you felt was a perspective you had not heard before but found enlightening.
1: Eventually, my work in social work revolved around hospice work. So I was very interested in the soul. This topic is addressed as to the nature of our soul in the sense that our soul has a beginning, but no end. We receive our soul at the moment of conception. But the astounding thing to me, and to me it really is, is that in actuality it gives us all the powers that distinguishes us as human beings. Our reason, our memory, abstract thought, willpower, inventiveness, these are all properties of soul, not the body. They're not the properties of a highly evolved brain, they are the properties of the soul. So, our soul is what allows us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. And it allows us to take the invisible to the visible. I find that just an astounding thought. You know, a friend of mine once said, you know, Judy, we actually already have one foot in the divine. That is because we have the soul, which is our connection to God. I really liked that. So actually, I guess we could say we're actually sort of extraterrestrial, right? <laughs> we're, if we define that as being, uh, you know, sort of outside or originating away from the earth and its atmosphere, our soul definitely gives us that component. You know, it's also the thing that allows us to put our own selfish interests aside and I think look for the largeness in ourselves rather than the smallness. It allows us to look at the larger destiny of the world and the future. And it is this thing that will allow us as human beings to bring the kingdom of God to this planet to establish God's kingdom on this earth as Christ foretold to us that it was going to happen. Baha'is, by the way, fully believed that that is to happen.
0: Judy, maybe you can explain a little bit what the relationship is between the soul and the body. If the soul is created at conception, what exactly is the soul in relationship to the body?
1: The soul is not in the body. It associates with the body happened to write children's book, and I did write one about the soul. And the way I put it in the children's book was, it's like a best friend who's always around. It's not in you. We can't see it. But it is a mysterious association with us. And it is the thing that makes us spiritual.
0: And then what happens after we pass away?
1: Well, this is when it really gets good. We get our soul returns to be with God. The other thing that was very exciting to me, of course, after we die, we will be looking at what we did and how we did it in in this earth. So the real job for us on the earth is to develop ourselves spiritually, ah but also. More than that, that spirituality must translate itself into service to humanity. So it can't just be a concept that just sort of floats around in our mind. It's not okay to say, okay, well, I'm developing this relationship with God and sort of keeping that to ourselves. This relationship with God manifests itself into service to humanity. So it's not going to matter how many toys we have or how much money or what we own or didn't own. Very much it's going to be how we developed our soul on this earth and what we did with that development. One of the really exciting things, though, is we will have the opportunity to continue to grow and develop and to serve after we go to be with him so it's not like our job is done when we die it's like we will be continuing to contribute to the world of humanity and to God's creation i find that very exciting so the idea of after you retire, you really get to retire. After you would die, you get to retire is not really true. <laughs> so it's not a static place. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. It's not static. It is an ever-continuing kingdom of God. I think that's very exciting.
0: So the Baha'i perspective is that there is a relationship between the souls that have passed away and those souls still living upon the earth?
1: Oh, I mean, we can pray for our loved ones. We are told that souls will recognize each other on the other side. That's a neat way of putting it, but on the other side. now. The Baha'i Faith has a lot to say about what happens after we die, but there's a lot of it, too, that is still a great mystery. And we are told that if we actually knew what it was like, that we would all sort of want to skip this part (laughs) that we're doing down here on Earth and go to be with God. So a lot of it is... A great mystery. In other faith traditions, I have not found as much information about what happens after we die as it relates to the soul.
0: It reminds me of the emphasis in the Native American culture to the ancestors and the importance of the ancestors and the relationship of the ancestors to people.
1: It is so touching. I'm always touched to Feel that closeness. I mean, my father died many years ago, and I still in many, many ways feel very close to him. I hadn't thought of it that way, honestly, but I think it is that way, that we have this continuing relationship. These people can root for us. They can pray for us. And their work is continuing. And I'll tell you, this understanding, this limited understanding, really helped me a lot in my work as a hospice social worker, because as you can imagine, the the people that I was working with were terminally ill people. So I, I really think that that's what allowed me to uh, do that job for so many years, was to have this... uh wider understanding of their destiny and i can say that there were deaths that i attended that were absolutely beautiful the peace and the serenity of the way many people die is really wonderful to see
0: so you became a bahai about the time when you were pursuing your master's in social work
1: I became a Baha'i in 1989. So I guess I had just started my master's degree, yes.
0: And you said that somehow that informed the direction you were heading in in your education?
1: At that time, no, because I finished up my bachelor's degree in 1988. I declared in 1989 when I had already registered and was on my path to being a social worker. It's very interesting the way things work out, isn't it? (laughs) I've come to believe that there's really no accident. I've reached the age where I really see how even the difficult things and the good things have all worked out to my benefit and led me to where I needed to be.
0: Yeah, I think I read in the Baha'i writing somewhere, it might have been Abdu'l-Baha, who said that nothing happens by accident.
1: You know, I believe that. Of course, you know, as human beings, quote-unquote, we have, you know, free will, right? And we can choose to go against God's wishes and desires for this. We can decide to follow that path. But whatever we decide... It's interesting, within that framework, we're going to go in the direction that will give us the opportunity to draw closer to God. Now, whether we choose that or not, I think is each individual's decision to make.
0: Did you pursue a PhD after you got your master's?
1: No. To be honest with you, I really wanted to get out and practice because... In 1993, the years were not going backwards for me. I was, what, I was 50 years old.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so to spend a lot more years in school was something that I really didn't want to do. I sort of regretted that I hadn't done that sooner, but I really wanted to get my profession underway. So that was really the practical reason that made me decide to go in that direction. But I had made wonderful friends over the years and really got into hospice by accident. But it was a good fit for me. And I think part of that had to do... There's a fair degree of burnout in the hospice field because it's hard. I mean, you're around death and dying all the time. But I can definitely say that Being a Baha'i really held me in good stead to be able to do that job for as long as I did. And I didn't retire until, oh, about a year and a half ago. So I did that job for a long time, attended many, many deaths, worked with a lot of different families. I think it really helped to have the right spiritual perspective on what was happening.
0: Now, you said you fell into the hospice care. How did that happen?
1: Well, I started out in child protective services, and I couldn't make that work. You know, it's good to know what your Achilles heel is, and I became aware that that was a very emotional area for me to go in. There were people there who were wonderful and could do that job, people would often say to me, oh, my gosh, how do you work in hospice? How can you be around that? And I always thought that was much easier for me than to working with abused children. I had a very difficult time keeping my perspective, and I realized that I needed to make a change. Well, this woman that I had done an internship with, I contacted her. I told her my dilemma, and she said, Well, why don't you come to work here? There's a hospice job open here for social workers. Why don't you give that a try? So I did, and it was a very good fit for me.
0: Now, you said you wanted to get in the practical field when you were going to school but were you at all working in in a related field while you were going to school because you were, you were working full-time?
1: I very often worked in the university setting. I worked for a large university medical center. In fact, I was able to do part of my social work internship there, working with cancer patients. So most of my career, honestly, was working in hospitals or medical centers and later on, I was able to do teaching in the health sciences field at an online university using a very social work perspective as far as violence and women, those sorts of things from a social work perspective. So that profession just led me everywhere that I needed to be in everywhere I needed to go. Here again, it's all that interrelatedness that I've talked about and that I see.
0: Now, Judy, you mentioned you wrote a children's book, so tell me about that.
1: Well, one of the things that I I started doing, because I like to keep myself busy, I have written three children's books that have been published, many others that have not, I might hasten to add, (laughs) (laughs) And I also have submitted and have had published children's poetry that I've submitted and had published at United Kingdom Baha'i Children's Magazine, which is entitled Spring. So every once in a while, I will get some divine inspiration and things will come to me, and I'll just start writing it down and working on it, and then I'll submit it some somewhere. But I do enjoy that creative process. The first book I wrote was the elegant Miss Osa Barely, and as you can guess, it's, it's about a bear, but it deals with the virtue of unity and diversity. The first gift was the second one, which is explaining to children or attempting to explain to children, informing them that they have a soul. And what that soul does for them. I think it's very important for children to understand that at a very early age. Then the last one that's in the process of being published right now is how do you do, who are you? And it's just really a little geographic jaunt uh, around the world to make short little visits with uh, different children in different locations in the world. That's what I've done so far, and I'm usually always working on something or another. And as I said, these ideas are really a gift to me, and uh, I like to take advantage of the gift and see if I can't do something with it.
0: So you do the illustration as well?
1: No. Actually, my son and his wife... Did illustrations for two of my books, and then there was a illustrator that the publisher used for the first gift.
0: So, what other projects do you have in the works?
1: Well, I just submitted a little story about a star to a DaySpring magazine that tells a little story of how. <laughs> how children can twinkle like a star. So it's it's pretty basic, but uh, it talks about how they can practice the virtues, how they can be kind to other people, and how they can shine like a star. As you can imagine, it's for young children.
0: Sure. I find it interesting, Judy, that your work was in hospice care, and then on the other side you're doing children's books?
1: I guess that is sort of of interesting. I think I really relate to kids. I felt I could reduce some of these spiritual concepts to a level that a child would understand, that I could explain some things. And I liked that idea, I never thought of myself as teaching children or being involved that way, but that's turned into a big part of my life. You know, Baha'is are really involved in these activities where they are open to people of all faiths. The whole idea is for, again, Baha'is to put their faith in action to serve humanity by offering children's classes, junior youth programs, neighborhood devotionals, and also, as Baha'is, we have some wonderful classes. The first one is called The Life of the Spirit, and it's all about deepening our spiritual understanding of who we are, and I have been very involved with teaching children's classes, and I never thought I would do that, but I went there, I tried it, and I loved it. It really renews me spiritually. I don't think I know another way to put it. It's like they are like these little lamps. <laughs> and if you can just put a little light in there and to watch them listen to the stories, and sing the songs, learn their prayers. And one of their little prayers is, O God, guide me, protect me, make of me a shining light and a brilliant star. Thou art the mighty and the powerful. To see those children learn that prayer, say that prayer, uh, is very meaningful to me. I love it. I teach two children's classes and it is a shot in the arm every week. <laughs> I get I'm sure I get more out of it than they do.
0: Now, did you not realize you had this affinity for children back when you were figuring out what you wanted to do in your life?
1: Actually, I didn't. I you know, I always said when I was younger, "Oh my goodness, I would never want to teach children."
0: <laughs> Interesting.
1: I had, of course, two children of my own that I was raising on my own, so perhaps that came from my time and attention was focused on them at that time, because it needed to be. I don't even know if I had time to think about it, to be honest. Well, right, we said there's no accidents, right? It just sort of came at me. Now, I'll tell you sort of an interesting story, and it, it sounds a little weird, but it's actually the truth. In 1980, I was on a trip with my mother, and I could not sleep because this story just kept banging around in my head. And I got up, and I wrote some notes in my travel journal, and years later, I came across that story, and that story, from 1980 to almost the year 2000, had been in my head, and that was the nucleus for my first book, The Elegant Miss Osa Barely. So... I think maybe the door was being knocked on and I just maybe kept putting it aside for whatever reason. But about um, the year 2000, as I mentioned, oh, these stories started just coming to me fast and furiously. And I said, okay, you better listen, Judy, this is a gift. You're being given this you better do something with it. (laughs) And so I did. It's very weird. The stories come to me very, very quickly. That's the easy part. The hard part is editing yourself and figuring out how you want to construct the story, how you want to make it appealing to children. But the ideas, they just come to me. And very often at the most inopportune (laughs) times, to tell you so. I, I try to carry a little bit of paper around with me all the time so that when they do, I just will jot the core of the idea down. Because if I don't, the idea will go away. So I pay attention to that.
0: Well, Judy, thank you so much for sharing your story and your stories.
1: Well, you're very welcome.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Judy Cobb, a social worker in the field of hospice care and the author of two published children's books, The Elegant Miss O'Seberly and The First Gift. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org. Or you can call the toll free number 1 800 22 Unite. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
3: The day he left her, she couldn't speak Stared out the window the better part of a week She'd lived her life through him for such a long time When she looked inside herself, she wasn't sure what she'd find She had to open the door a little wider now she had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow. She walked into the fire, alone and scared, stiff. Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift. Little Jamie's body has never worked right. He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night. His parents get weary and his parents get worn. Still, they always bless the day that little Jamie was born. He opens the door a little wider. Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But as folks know life with James is just a strangely wrapped gift What is it that burn, or do we glow? On my doorstep looks sad and forlorn The wrapping paper's faded It's all tattered and torn For a moment I wonder what on earth it might be Till I see the tag and realize It's made out to me It's gonna open the door a little wider now Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Send me a strangely wrapped gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really loves me Someone who loves me Send me a strangely ride
2: Suffice all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God suffice it. Say, God, God. sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth. Rarely. Is in himself the knower, the sustainer. verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer beyond. beyond it, the Say God, Say God suffice it, all, God. Things all, things. <laughs> all things above all things And nothing in the heavens are in the earth but God suffice Say God suffice all things Above all things And nothing in the heavens are in the earth But God suffice Verily, nee, is in himself and nowhere the sustainer Verily, nee, is in himself and nowhere the sustainer Verily, mm. is in himself and nowhere the sustainer Verily, is in himself and nowhere the sustainer